Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Hester Peirce, a commissioner for the Securities and Exchange Commission. Commissioner Peirce is a highly accomplished expert on financial regulation. If you're on Twitter or you're a CNBC fan, you've probably heard her talk about cryptocurrency many times. And for our listeners interested in ESG, you'll get to hear from one of the most incisive critics of the ESG movement. One thing I appreciate about Hester is her sense of humor and her ability to relate incredibly complex issues with clarity and precision. And I'm so excited to dive into topics like cryptocurrency regulation, corporations and the public good, ESG, and more together on today's episode. Before we begin, I do want to note that at the time of this episode's recording several weeks ago, the SEC only had four commissioners. And since then, Mark Uyeda and Jaime Lazarga have both been sworn in. All of that said, without further delay, we are so excited to bring you Hester Purse. Hester Purse, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. This has been a much, much awaited interview, not only for myself, our team, our students, our investor audience as well. So thrilled to have you and thank you for the time. We don't have a ton of time together, so I'd love to just dive right in. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from today? Well, Ross, it's a delight to be here, and I am calling uh, from my office in Washington, D.C., so really grateful to have the chance to talk with you today. I do have to give you my disclaimer, which is that my views are my own views, not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Well, thank you very much for the disclaimer. We'll make sure everyone notes that. I want to jump right in, Commissioner, and I want to begin by discussing your background and career. You have an incredibly interesting life and career story, in my opinion. Can you give our audience a summary first of your career from when you started becoming interested in financial regulation to your current role as SEC commissioner? Sure. I mean, I think I was interested in financial regulation even from when I was a, a kid, a bit, in the sense that I like to graph out the stock market, see where are different companies. I like to see where their stock prices were going and probably in part because I really liked graph paper, but I also thought it was interesting to think about companies' value and how that got reflected in prices. But I went on to study economics in college, and that was kind of a life-changing experience for me just because it, it really changed the way I looked at how many things in the world work. Wanted to go on and, and study economics more, but I'm not great at math. And so I ended up going to law school instead. But I, I hope to have some way of merging those two, keeping my foot in the economics and markets aspect of things, and also thinking about law and policy. And so securities law was a really good place to go for that. And if you're going to do securities law, you should spend some time at the SEC. And so I ended up starting at a firm, but then moving over to the SEC, where I was a rule writer. I wrote rules for mutual funds, which sounds Nothing like what I anticipated doing when I went to law school, but I learned a tremendous amount. They're great teachers at the SEC because they're people who are really steeped in the law. They've worked here for a long time. And so I was able to learn a tremendous amount from them and then was able to join a commissioner's office on his staff where I was able to get a broader view of the commission 
And then when he left the commission, I also left, spent some time on Capitol Hill, and then really was interested in understanding the theory behind financial regulation and more generally the theory behind regulation. And so I went to research center where there were a lot of economists who spent a lot of time thinking about how do you regulate well and how do you think about the consequences of regulation. And then from there, I got the opportunity to come back to the SEC as a commissioner, uh, which was a tremendous honor and I thought would be a, a really wonderful opportunity to put some of those lessons about regulation to work uh, here at the SEC. What an incredible story, Hester. I appreciate you sharing. I want to ask uh, a question about your role as a commissioner, and I'll actually give a disclaimer myself before I ask my question. People oftentimes ask me, what's my political leaning? Am I left or right? And I like to say that I'm radical middle. (laughs) So I will start by sharing that first. I share that because you are the lone Republican of the four SEC commissioners. And a lot of times in our society today, people are finding it difficult to engage in meaningful dialogue with people they disagree with. Can you talk about the role of substantive civil disagreement in ethical leadership and what advice you would give our students and our investors listening to have better disagreements, maybe especially on hot topics like crypto or ESG, for instance? I will say that the the SEC, although it's politically balanced, and for your listeners who might not know, the SEC is made up of typically of five commissioners. We're at the moment at four, but just on the precipice of getting our our full complement back. And so it has to be politically balanced by law where the, the president's party gets the majority, but then there's representation from the other side as well. And the goal is to kind of keep policy as consistent over time as possible. And so you don't get major swings of policy when the administration shifts. And so this makes the SEC a bit different than some of the other agencies in Washington. But at its core, the capital markets serve everyone. They're not about left or right or middle. They're they're for serving everyone. They're for bringing together people who have money with people who have ideas into a marketplace where they can combine those two things to build companies, which in turn build communities and serve communities and help people save for their retirements and for their to pass money on to their children or pay for their children's education. That's something that we as Americans can all come together around. And so I don't think of the SEC or my role as inherently a political role. The goal is for us all to work together and bring together our different experiences and our different philosophies about regulation and about how markets work and how best to protect investors and and how to make sure that our markets are are efficient and orderly. We bring together our different views on that, but it's essential for everyone to have input on that. And so even though I can look down the hall and see my colleagues and say, you know what, I don't see the regulatory landscape exactly the way they do, but I really appreciate hearing from them and learning from them. And I'm grateful that they bring a different perspective And that makes the ultimate decisions better. Do I get outvoted now? Certainly I do. But I can look at all of my colleagues and know that I have something to learn from them and I have learned things from them. So my advice to students and others who might be listening is revel in the fact that we live in a country where you can view things in a uniquely you kind of way and you can express that view. And that's going to contribute to the dynamism of our country Um, The fact that we come from so many different backgrounds, our parents and grandparents come from so many different 
places across the globe and came here and were united by ideals that are everyone having something to contribute and everyone's voice being important. So I think it's really exciting to live in a community and to work in an environment where you have a diversity of voices and where everyone doesn't say exactly the same thing that you say or think exactly the same way you think. It makes life more exciting, more interesting, and ultimately, I think, more fulfilling. I could not agree more, Commissioner Purse. I think that the fact that we can hold our own views, navigate those, and learn from others with different views, that's one of my favorite processes in life, right? Of all the different things that we go through day to day, dialectic. I oftentimes talk to my team about the difference between debate and dialectic. And dialectic is one of my favorite forms of relationship and interpersonal engagement, frankly. I really enjoy it. That said, I would love to dive right in into a a bit of a topic I think is going to be really important. Would love to pivot to talking about crypto regulation, something that there is lots of debate on. And first, since our listeners include many college students, we have to start with the notorious crypto mom nickname that you've garnered. Can you tell us the backstory of how that came about and how you feel about it? (laughs) Yeah, I got the name uh, about four years ago when I wrote a dissent. We were we the commission was denying a, a Bitcoin exchange traded product, and I didn't understand why we were doing that. I thought it was being denied because it was Bitcoin, not because we were actually applying the standards as we applied them to other commodities. So I wrote a dissent, and the dissent went out, and I got as a result of that nicknamed Crypto Mom. I think it's important. It, I think it's kind of funny because I don't actually have children. So I always say, well, you get children that you didn't expect <laughs> you would get. And I certainly uh, certainly did in that regard. But at the same time, a couple disclaimers about the name. First, you should never think about the government as your parent. It's very important, you know, going back to the ideals on which this country was built. We're a country about individual responsibility. And there is a role for government. There's a role for regulation. But we really count on people to make their own decisions and to do so wisely, taking into account lots of information. So that's that's one important piece. And the second piece is I'm not an advocate for any industry. What I'm an advocate for is, is for people being able to experiment with new things, try their new ideas. Some of them are going to fail. Some of them are going to succeed. It doesn't matter if you think crypto is a good idea or a bad idea. What matters is that the people who are trying to build something there are able to try it out and do so. We, as the SEC, have no role to play in shutting down innovative ideas. Our role is solely to get information out there so that people can make decisions about it on their own. You know, what's interesting that you share that. I appreciate you with uh, sharing those disclaimers that we shouldn't take a paternal or maternal view of our government and remember that we are all participants in it collaboratively, uh, right, as peers in, exactly. in some sense. You know, Bill Gates just came out recently saying that NFTs are 100% based on greater fool theory. And you've acknowledged before that there's a lot of fraud in crypto. So while we want people to experiment, there are potential risks. At the same time, like you mentioned, there are also a lot of barriers to innovation. Um, Thinking about regulation from a Goldilocks perspective, too little, too much, and just right, where would you say we are right now and where we need to be? Well, that's an interesting way to ask the question. I guess I would say it depends on what, what you're talking about. So I think in some areas, we have too much regulation in the sense that we tend to, so the SEC has been around since the 1930s, and we've had federal securities law for a long time now. 
And what ends up happening is you end up getting layer upon layer of regulation. So you think you have a set of rules that works, and then you realize, no, no, we need to patch this hole. We need to add this rule. And so you keep adding rules, but it's much easier to add rules than it is to start thinking about which ones you should pair away and, and subtract. So I think it's healthy for us periodically to look at the rule book and say what can go and what should stay. So there may be rules that need to be replaced or eliminated. But at the same time, in an area like crypto, I would say we could stand to have some more rulemaking that would be tailored to some of the new things that crypto brings with it. Now, I get the pushback against crypto-specific regulation, which some people say is not appropriate because they want to have technology-neutral regulation, which I often advocate. I think that is what we need to have. But this new technology does bring some new challenges and new opportunities. So I think we need to craft some regulatory framework around it. And I think you're seeing that that people in, you know, ultimately it depends what, as you said, the government is for the people, right? Is we, We're all peers here. And so the people need to sit down and think about what kind of regulatory framework they want. And I think you see some of that being worked out now in Congress. There have been bills introduced. There was just recently a a large comprehensive kind of bill introduced, but there have been many other smaller bills also around crypto. And this is an opportunity to say, okay, do we want to have a federal regulatory regime for exchanges? What do we think about decentralized finance? What do we think about NFTs, stablecoins? So I do think there's room for new regulations to you know, make it a lot clearer what the lines are in this area. I'm really excited to see those lines get clearer. I mean, I think that personally, my own opinion, that crypto blockchain has so much potential to drive social progress, frankly, right? Distributing power through DAOs, distributing ownership. I was at the Milken conference a few weeks ago. I'm part of the Young Leader Circle now. Um, I was nominated by Chris Campbell, actually, a friend I'm sure of yours, and was at the Milken conference. And at the Coinbase happy hour, they actually gave us all like an NFT, like in a little frame. So I have my first NFT, finally, a physical NFT, which is kind of cool. And so I personally want to see really clear regulation come through so I can know what to expect in the future. I think your point about decentralization is is sort of one of the key aspects that is going to be a challenge from a regulatory perspective. And that's something we have to think about. So because we're used to dealing with a financial system that has intermediaries that we can pinpoint, but one of the goals of distributed technology is to distribute, as you say, distribute power to people who are using the technology. And so we do have to rethink some regulatory questions in light of that. And again, some people are going to say, well, that will never, that dream will never materialize. Well, that's fine. People can can take that position, but I think we still are seeing development along these lines. And so we're going to have to figure out how to accommodate it from a regulatory uh, perspective in a way that allows us to still meet the regulatory objectives in a sensible way. You know, that segues into a question that I wanted to ask next. Morgan Stanley recently released a statement that uncertainty driven by political disagreement on crypto regulation both hurts consumers by failing to check abuse and chills growth and innovation. You've argued that Congress needs to give more direction to the SEC about how to approach crypto. Can you talk more broadly about the relationship between policymakers and regulators and what you think a productive relationship would look like for crypto specifically? Well, ultimately, having worked in the Senate on the staff, 
staff in the Senate gives me a deep appreciation for the fact that we at regulatory agencies work for Congress. We don't work for ourselves, right? Because Congress has the direct connection to the the population, to the people. And so we have to ultimately take our directives from the statutes they give us. And we have some statutory authority that I think is quite relevant to what's happening in certain areas of crypto. And there's no reason why we couldn't be exercising that statutory authority now, including, as I've argued, to, to create exemptions that would be tailored for this technology, but would also have conditions on it so that people would have to comply with those conditions in order to get the exemptive relief. So we have that power. We could be using it. At the same time, there's some questions around where the jurisdictional lines lie. And there's some there's some areas where maybe multiple regulators might have something to say. And so if Congress comes in and says, this is where we want the regulatory authority to lie, that answers a lot of questions. It makes it easier. We don't have to work some of these things out. Now, I expect that crypto may end up pervading quite a bit of what we do. And so it may ultimately be something that every regulator has to grapple with at some level. But still, I think Congress is is laying out some of the real questions that have to be answered. For example, stable coins, should they be regulated as a banking product or should they be regulated under the securities laws? Those kinds of questions, congressional line drawing could be quite helpful. That actually segues, I think, really nicely into the next topic that I'd love to dive into, the role of corporations in finance in the public interest. As scholars of finance, we talk a lot about the role finance plays because of the relationship between capital, political, and social power in changing society, and hopefully for the better. It's our vision and mission. One of our students, actually, in a recent podcast said that he had chosen to pursue a a career in finance specifically because he saw it as the highest leverage instrument to making a positive impact in society. You have said before that corporate work is public interest work. Would love it if you can elaborate on that a bit. Sure. Well, the, the whole purpose, I mean, we have to take a step back and think, what is a corporation? A corporation is a group of people combining their efforts to produce something, product or service, which in turn is intended to serve other people. It's meeting needs that other people have. And so there are some things you can do on your own. You know, you can, I can set up a lemonade stand and sell lemonade. I don't really need any help to do that. But if I'm trying to build a car, I'm going to need some help. And so I'm going to need probably to build a company or some kind of organization. I mean, decentralized autonomous organizations are another way of doing some of these kinds of things. But but a company is a way of of combining people's talents in order to build something that they couldn't build on their own. And so if you think about it that way, a company, if you truly have a free market, a company will survive or fail based on whether it's actually meeting a need that people have. If a company is making something that people want, it'll be around. If a company is making something that only a few people want or nobody wants, it's going to disappear. And so there's a real need for companies to be thinking, how can we better serve our communities? How can we better produce a product or service? And that's a really valuable way then of making sure that resources are going to places where resources should be going because companies are responding to the market. They're responding to price signals in the market. So if I'm looking at how I can make a difference, you know, you can certainly make a difference in government, but you can also make a difference by making a better product or service that makes people's lives better. 
I'm actually happy to hear that the student chose finance as a career because I'm always trying to make that case, which is that finance, because it undergirds the whole economy, you can make a real difference. And if you want to change a family's life, help that family to get on better financial footing. Help the mother in that family to start the business that she wanted to start by getting her financing for that little business that she um, started in her spare time and wants to make her full-time job. That will not only mean that she can pay for, put food on the table, pay the bills, put her kids through college, but also that she'll be able to contribute to the community, hire other people, serve the community's needs, and then ultimately pass on the business or her wealth to the next generation, which can transform that community. It is a real way to affect real people's lives in tangible ways and to make people better off. And then giving people the opportunity to invest in other companies to get a piece of the growth. If you're buying a product from a company, you can also own a piece of the company. That's really exciting. And again, is a way to build wealth, which can then be passed on from generation to generation, which can just really improve people's lives. I couldn't agree more. And as you know, even basic financial literacy is generally not taught in high schools here in the United States, which negatively impacts young people's adult lives and their families for generations. And we actually just launched a partnership with an organization called First Generation Investors that has college students mentor high school students on financial literacy and investment principles. And we're having all of our scholars of finance members be a, a pool of potential mentors for this organization. And I'm curious, going forward, what actions need to be taken in order to combat this lack of financial literacy and ensure our youth receive a strong financial education, in your opinion? Well, I think it's great to hear that you've got a program that's concentrating on high school students, because I really think before people graduate from high school and go out on their own, and you know, they're very consequential good and bad decisions that you can make in your early adulthood. So it's important to be prepared. And it's really difficult to kind of know where to start with that. So I would argue high school is great. I would argue we could even go younger. Kids, even in elementary school, are starting to get curious about how things are produced, how, what is a company. When I was little in elementary school, I was interested in stocks. And so there's no reason we can't start earlier and give kids an appreciation for money, for the ability for money to grow if you put it away and invest it. And so I would like to do that because I agree with you. If we don't, if we don't get better education, then we are creating the risk that people will be vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Even telling people what some of the red flags are early on, kids are very able to learn things. And so let's get that into their heads while they're young so that they'll always have their radar up and be on the alert for frauds. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier that you wrote rules for mutual funds, and we just recorded an episode of the podcast with John Rogers, the founder and, and co-CEO and CIO of Aerial Investments. And he had shared that he started getting into stocks and finance as early as 12, because his father would give him the Wall Street Journal, would would, would give him, get him stock for his birthday. So I think the up, the potential upside for starting young is so enormous, clearly, obviously an anecdotal example. And one thing we oftentimes talk to our students about, like an example, an illustrative picture that I'll paint is, you know, when you think about someone in venture capital or in private equity, who's mobilizing capital into private assets, I get to make a decision. If I have a billion dollars of dry powder to 
make it simple. I say I could drop that billion dollars into mobile games, right? That just slowly siphon, you know, 10 cents or, you know, 99 cents or $3 at a time from people, or that same billion dollars could be plowed into ed tech and fintech and help that same population achieve financial independence potentially. Or I could drop a hundred million dollars as a VC into Jewel and help high school kids get away with smoking. Or that same hundred million dollars, I, I could have put that into Whole Foods or a company that helps that same population eat well, be healthy. It's it's incredible the amount of decision-making that investors have when they're allocating capital and the, the potential scaled impact that that can have on society. With that said, how do you think about sort of the role as investor in, in being a steward and ensuring that they're thoughtful about the effects and the impacts of their investment decision-making? Well, I mean, uh, people's investment decisions, I think, are very personal decisions, and people can make those decisions based on the things that are important to them. There is the ability to take the money that you earn either by working or through your investments and then donating it to causes that are important to you. That's also valuable. So if you you build wealth, you have more ability to uh, give to the causes that matter to you as well. But I think it's, it's also important to realize that different people take different views of of what might be valuable, right? So some people would think, oh, you know, gaming, that's not an area where I want to invest. But other people say, no, gaming is where a lot of this technological development will come that will help us develop virtual reality, which will then help us better understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of someone who has limited mobility or Alzheimer's or whatever. You know, the technologies can be translated from one area, which we might not think has a lot of value to another area that actually does. So I guess this is going to be another place for me to put a pitch in for the fact that we're all so different and we all see different things. And it's neat that we can express those things both in writing and talking to one another, but also in the way that we invest and think about where there's value and what where there's going to be growth potential and not. That's what makes the capital markets dynamic and the economy dynamic is that you've got a bunch of people coming together, all of whom have slightly different perspectives on where things are going and where the future is going to take us. Thank you so much. I think this actually segues perfectly into the next broad topic I wanted to cover, which is ESG. You've been quoted before describing ESG as an acronym for enabling shareholder graft and as a scarlet letter phenomenon. Can you unpack what this acronym and your literary analogy means for our audience? Well, first of all, ESG is a term that kind of means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and is changing all the time. So I think we need to recognize that ESG for one person may be very different than ESG for another. What I am concerned about is, is so I think the corporation is, is, as I said, a valuable way of bringing people together to work for, to produce products and services that are going to be useful to other people. So how should a corporation be run? It's always hard when you bring together a bunch of people like that to manage something, to manage the corporation. And so what we have traditionally said is a company is owned by the shareholders and it's being run with the idea of maximizing the financial value of the company so that shareholders, the thing they own together, rises in value. Well, with ESG, I think what a lot of people are trying to do is say, wow, you know, we see these corporations 
And we don't want them to serve shareholders. We don't want them to be focused on shareholders. We want them to be focused on a thousand other constituencies. We want them to be focused on regulators and communities and employees and all of those other communities to the extent they interact with the corporation are important for the corporation to take into account. But it's like anything else. If you have too many different bosses, you're going to answer to no one except yourself. So if I, as a manager of a company, can say, I'm prioritizing ESG, well, as I said, ESG can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So what that basically means is I just took control of the company so that I can use it for whatever makes me happy, for whatever I think is ESG. By contrast, if you have to answer to the shareholder, you have to explain why that ESG mission has some link to the long-term financial value of the company. It keeps you focused as a manager. It keeps it makes sure that you're not taking corporate assets and using them for your own purposes. So this is kind of controversial now, but I think if we really look at this, it's the way to ensure that corporate managers are staying on the straight and narrow. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're returning value to shareholders who can then take that value and donate it to causes that are important to them or reinvest it in other companies that might be doing things that they're interested in. So that's kind of the reason why I've been a little skeptical of the the ESG movement. Uh, You've criticized ESG practices in the past for inconsistency and inaccuracy in reporting and measurement, which I, you know, a lot of us have shared as as criticisms. I mean, we've heard a lot of lamenting from from companies about when you were recently the lone vote against issuing two proposals at the SEC focused on increasing ESG disclosures. The Wall Street Journal reported that Chairman Gensler likened one of the proposals to information about nutrition facts printed on the back of a carton of skin milk. Do you think investors, especially people like our student members who might make ESG-informed investment decisions, should not get access to this sort of information? Well, so I think you're referring to a couple of proposals that we've done recently. One was a proposal around disclosure for public companies about climate-related risks and opportunities. And then there were two other proposals that dealt with mutual funds and investment advisors, and particularly focusing on those funds that call themselves ESG or sustainable or or something along those lines. There's been a lot of concern because ESG is trendy now, sustainable investing is trendy. There's a lot of temptation for advisors and funds to say, oh yeah, I'm an ESG fund or I'm sustainable. And then, you know, they can charge more because some people want that, right? So they charge more, but then they don't do anything to earn that extra money. And so there's a lot of concern around this notion of of greenwashing. We already have the tools to go after that. If you, as a fund or an advisor, say you're managing someone's money according to a a particular way, and you're not actually doing that, we can bring an enforcement action against you. So I would argue that existing authorities allow us to do a lot of this stuff already, I would have supported a rule that had some very simple prescriptions, such as if you say you're ESG, tell us what ESG means to you, tell us how you're actually carrying that out, and then tell us if that ESG objective is going to result in a lower financial return for your investors, tell us that also. But the rules that we put out there are much more complicated and actually seem designed to shift capital flows as opposed to forcing 
people forcing advisors and funds to just reveal what it is they're doing with your money, which I think is obviously important that investors know what their financial professionals are doing with their money. That's super interesting. And I'd love to double click on the greenwashing piece. People across the political aisle have criticized ESG as a form of greenwashing or virtue signaling PR to distract from underlying issues related to bad management. What do you think of that line of critique? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at this on a on a very facts and circumstances basis. There are a lot of funds out there and there are a lot of different kinds of funds. They're funds that make it very clear. We are prioritizing a particular E, S, or G goal. And we're going to do that even if it means lower returns for you. They're putting it out there, being very out front with it. There are other funds that say we're thinking about ESG issues in connection with managing your money, but financial returns will always dominate. Some people would argue that funds have been doing that for a long time because, again, there are a lot of things that get pulled into ESG that money managers and public companies have been thinking about throughout all the ages, right? You all, of course, are going to think about your employees. You're going to think about how to keep a happy, productive workforce. You're going to think about how do you maintain good relationships with your community? How do you avoid environmentally damaging the community within which you work? Because you know that would alienate the community. How do you keep your regulators happy? Those are things that companies think about all the time. And so those kinds of funds are a little bit different. And I think we have to look on a facts and circumstances basis and judge people the same way with respect to ESG that we do with other kinds of things. Just tell people how it is you view ESG, how it is you're using it. That's fine. But when we come and we come up with a detailed rule that attempts to try to direct people's behavior, that's something different. That's a really, really interesting perspective. And I I appreciate you sharing that. I want to talk about the critique on financial returns and and shareholder focus. Your public critiques of ESG disclosure requirements have tended to focus on decreased financial returns and inappropriate exercises of regulatory authority, which you just mentioned. Freed, Bush, and Basson completed a landmark meta-study that reviewed the results of 2,200 other analyses from 1970 through 2014. One of the most comprehensive and authoritative looks at ESG's impact on financial performance. And the authors wrote that, quote, The results show that the business case for ESG investing is empirically very well found, that roughly 90% of studies find a non-negative ESG to corporate financial performance relation, and that more importantly, the large majority of studies report positive findings. When a lot of data suggests that ESG is actually good for financial returns, where does your concern about returns stem from? Well, I think it's very difficult to do that kind of a study or even a survey of studies because ESG, as I said, means different things and it means different things to different people and different things over time. And so it's very hard to compare across. And I I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, our market is going through an interesting time right now. It'll be interesting to see whether some of those correlations change over time or whether the definitions of ESG change so that portfolios can change. I think people really need to be very precise and granular when they're thinking about these issues. Look, if you're an investor, you have to figure out what it is you care about as an investor. If you want to maximize your financial returns in your investments so that you can make a lot of money by investing and take that money and give it to charities that you care about, that's a fine way to go. If you decide, you know what, I only want to invest in companies that avoid alcohol and tobacco or avoid 
weapons manufacturers, whatever it is that you you want to avoid or you want to support, you're free to do that and you're free to, to search out information to do that and make your own decisions about whether you think that will positively or negatively affect your financial returns. But I think what we have to remember as a regulator is that our role is one of getting information to investors, qua investors. So when we think about what unifies investors, it's the desire to make a financial return. You and I might have other things that we also care about, but it's not the job of us to force a company to make disclosures that tie to things other than financial returns. And so if you can show a link to financial long-term financial value of the company in the type of disclosure you're asking for, then it's likely already getting disclosed. If you can't show that link, then it's not going to get disclosed under our rules, or it shouldn't. Now, under the proposal that we put out recently, we did away with the idea of materiality around certain climate metrics, and we said they've got to be disclosed no matter what. And I think that departure is troubling because when a company discloses information, it's costly to the company. You say, well, why is that costly to collect information and disclose it? The costliness comes from litigation risk, the cost of bringing in lawyers, every disclosure you make, you have to think about it. And also it distracts, right? When you put everything into a filing, people don't know which part is material and which part isn't. So that's why I really care about these issues. I think some ESG factors certainly have a tie to financial materiality, but it really has to be thought about on a company by company fact and facts and circumstance basis. That's super interesting. I want to throw out another common critique and, and ask your thoughts on this. So there was a point in history where we did not have generally accepted accounting principles. And over time, there were different accounting standards and we coalesced around a single set of accounting standards that all investors and regulators could use and expect from companies. Why shouldn't we expect the same thing about the impact they have on our climate, on people's lives, all of which may potentially impact corporate performance and long-term sustainability. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think accounting standards are this gem that we have in this country. I mean, other they're, they're international accounting standards as well, but just focusing on our gap financial standards, accounting standards here in the U.S., they're a way for investors to judge, to see an objective picture of the finances of the company. And that's a very valuable thing so that you can compare across companies. You can have a real sense that you're getting an economically accurate picture of the company. And there's definitely interest in having these standards, sustainability standards. There's now a recently formed International Sustainability Standards Board that sits alongside the international, the IASB, which is it's an international version of our FASB here in the U.S. And so there's a desire to have these standards. But the problem is when we're talking financial metrics, we're talking much more objectively, we can objectively agree. We can agree that there's one objective standard as opposed to the ESG, which is a lot of it is very subjective. It's based on assumptions and data that's much more difficult to come by. And so You can try to make standards and bake things into those standards so that you have comparable disclosures, but there's so much ambiguity there that you're kind of deceiving yourself to think that you can compare from company to company. 
And so I actually worry that by trying to set up sustainability standards, much like our accounting standards, we're actually going to end up watering down our accounting standards to the detriment of all investors instead of really developing a useful set of sustainability standards. Thank you, Hester. I appreciate you sharing. Can I move us into the rapid fire round where I just ask you three quick questions and you hit me with whatever's top of mind? Sure. All right. First question, Commissioner Purse, what piece of regulation in your career are you most proud of? That is a very good question. I'm always proud of the nuts and bolts kind of regulation that modernizes it. So I'm excited about a rulemaking project we have now to modernize our broker-dealer record-keeping rules. I'm sure if you asked me on a different day, I would have a different answer, but that's my answer for today. The sign of someone who's truly passionate. What have you been most excited about? What I'm doing right now? Second question. For those that hope to pursue or are considering pursuing a path similar to yours, like many of our students or early career investment professionals might, what advice would you give them? You know, just be intellectually curious and don't try to pre-plan your career, see where it takes you. And remember that you have unique talents that you can offer that nobody else can offer because it's the product of your unique set of experiences, strengths, weaknesses, but everyone else does too. So remember to learn from everyone else. Okay. Hester, final question. You've been so generous with the time that you've given to scholars of finance. You've spent time with me one-on-one, offered to provide us your advice, and here you are on the podcast when you must be incredibly busy. What stood out to you about our mission at Scholars of Finance, and why might you encourage others to get involved? In my role, I can't advocate for any organization other than the SEC. So I I encourage people to consider working for the SEC. But anyway, I love the fact (laughs) that you have uh, an enthusiasm, Ross. I've enjoyed speaking with you. And I really do think it's wonderful that you're thinking about introducing people to the financial field and reminding people of the role that finance can play in building better communities and a better society and really thinking about the financial system as a way to make people's lives better. And that doesn't mean that it's perfect. We have work to do on the financial system too, but but recognizing that it has a role to play in making people's lives better. Thank you, Hester. So grateful for the time today and hope we can have you on again sometime soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ross. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.